0: Hello hummingbirds, as I call all of you caring for animals and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare podcast, I Buzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another podcast. Today, I am delighted to have with me Don Broom, Emeritus Professor of Animal Welfare, Cambridge University Veterinary School and the St Catharines College. Welcome, Don. Hello. Delighted to have you on the podcast. And um, yeah, we have a lot of different questions here um, that we have talked about. Of course, we have you know, written paper together, we have, you know, I've been in some of your courses, we've done some seminars together. And, you know, there's just, you have, you often get, you know, to be called the father of animal welfare. And for those of the people listening uh, from zoos and aquariums and wildlife uh, centers and and other facilities, can you introduce uh, yourself and and why uh, do you have that name often?
1: Well, I started off in animal behaviour research uh, and uh, did that kind of work, uh, looking at the development of behaviour and uh, started to look at uh, the uh, behaviour of animals which were kept on farms and uh, uh, domestic animals in general. Uh, And then because at that time, and this is now the late 60s, early 70s, at that time, Uh, there wasn't any scientific subject of animal welfare so one had to work on animal behavior, on physiology, on uh, animal production systems uh, but it was clear that that there were some serious problems with the welfare of animals uh, uh, in particular on farms but also in other places uh, with other, other kinds of human use of animals. So I started to work on animal welfare topics and initially you couldn't Get any research funding for that, uh, but, uh, but and writing papers in scientific journals and writing books in which I referred to the welfare of animals. And so that, uh, that and I was doing that. I started in Cambridge University as a did a PhD there, and uh, and uh, my supervisor was Bill Thorpe, who was in fact involved in the Bramble Committee, uh, and then I, I worked in Reading University. Uh, for 19 years and that was an extremely good place to work and I had collaborations with people in a number of government research institutes. So that's how I started.
0: Yes, that's it, it's really fascinating also to hear that, uh, you know, your, your um, supervisor was somebody involved in the Bramble Committee. Like, and, and also who, you know, for those of the people listening and not knowing what is the Bramble Committee, Can you um, tell us more about that?
1: Yes. Well, uh, uh, in in the 1960s, uh, Ruth Harrison wrote a book called Animal Machines. And there was a UK government response to that, which was to set up a committee, which was chaired by uh, Professor Bramble. So the committee was called the Bramble Committee. uh, And that committee had a number of uh, people on it. And one of them was uh, Thorpe, uh, William Thorpe, who was... Uh, an ethologist working on animal behavior in Cambridge University uh, and uh, the, that, that committee uh, produced a report to the UK government which resulted in a new piece of legislation coming out fairly soon afterwards uh, which was uh, directed at saying we should be doing something about the welfare of farmed animals and up to that point there hadn't really been Uh, very much at all anywhere protecting the welfare of farmed animals Uh, so that's what that committee was about and uh, my only involvement with that was that uh, my uh, supervisor gave me a, uh, a recording of chicken noises and said can you tell me whether or not they are happy and I'm afraid at that stage of life, it was rather difficult to do that. Uh, nowadays, we know a bit more about it. but uh, So I had a little bit of contact right at the beginning with the animal welfare area. But my principal research was trying to understand the mechanisms underlying behavior and the motivation of animals to do things. Why do animals do things at one time rather than another time? And that, of course, applies to humans as well as other animals.
0: Yes. And wonderful to hear questions like, you know, using the sound of animals to understand, you know, what they might be experiencing um, is, a, is already, of course, a very old question. And uh, like you say, like people have been working on and in different species today. And what came out of the Bramble Committee? I mean, what is it known for with regards to animal welfare that is relevant today um, also still?
1: Well, there, there was a, an, an Act of Parliament in the UK, uh, which, which were, was called the Agriculture Miscellaneous Provisions Act, which it doesn't tell you what it did. Uh, and that at least set up, a, it set up the Farm Animal Welfare Council, which was appointed by the Minister of Agriculture in the UK, and said this this committee will, uh, will uh, try and look at some of the issues. And Ruth Harrison was a member of that committee. And some years later, I became a member of that committee. Uh, so I I, I jo- joined, joined the committee in um, in mid 1980s. And uh, that, that committee uh, encouraged people to start thinking about the welfare of animals, encouraged people to start thinking about animals as individuals and not machines. And this was the major point of, that Ruth Harrison made in her book, that we had moved by the early 70s to a situation where uh, people were starting to think about animals as just, here is an input and here is an output and in between is a little machine. And although farmers never really thought that, uh, they tended to treat, in some cases, to treat the animals as a mechanism rather than as an individual living being uh, which behaved and had feelings and so on, which people didn't think about very much. So there was, that was a significant development uh, and that that occurred. But it, and then what started to happen was that there were uh, probably around in, in the 70s and 80s, there were about a dozen people in the world who were doing scientific research, which was relevant to animal welfare. And these were some of these were in the UK. So the people like David Woodgush and Ian Duncan in Edinburgh, uh, Marion Dawkins at Oxford, uh, as well as uh, our group in Reading, and then there were people in 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 the netherlands people in sweden people in france and germany who were doing research which was relevant to animal welfare so there were perhaps a dozen people who were doing animal welfare research rather than uh, uh, of course there's also research on animal diseases which is really important for animal welfare Um, and so there was that kind of research on the on the treatment and causation of diseases so that was relevant to to welfare, but then the general area of um, uh, how what a, what the welfare of an individual was like in total uh, wasn 't really being looked at, and neither was it being looked at very well in human medicine in that there was a big concentration in human medicine on disease treatment and rather less on the role of the brain and problems which might have involved the brain and involved how individuals were coping with their lives. So I think it was a bit backward in human, in the human area, as well as in the uh, farmed animal companion animal area.
0: Yes, and can you tell us uh, a little bit more also the the five freedoms and the, and the Bramble committee?
1: Yeah, so one of the concepts which came out of this was that uh, Thorpe wrote uh, a paper saying, we have to think about what animals need and that was a good scientific concept. Thinking about the needs of animals, and it has nowadays uh, become a very important way of thinking. What what do animals need? Can we provide for the needs of animals? So Thorpe wrote that, uh, in and that came out in the Bramble report. Uh, but it was turned into uh, let's uh, think how what we can provide for the animals, and there was this concept. Which in, from the Bramble Committee of of, of of five freedoms give animals freedoms to do the basic things that they need in order to survive and have good welfare is what it was about, and that was a really valuable guideline for many years. I think nowadays it's a bit of an old-fashioned concept, but because we've we've moved on, because we've moved on to understand the needs of animals uh, in in a more precise way than is laid out in those rather uh, general uh, freedoms. Um, so it was a it was something which helped people to to think which was the right way to go in terms of uh, of, of providing for animal needs
0: yes and, and it's very important to see that historical perspective and i'm delighted that you're here uh, today with us sharing a lot of your insights on you know the history of of animal welfare and you know how perhaps can we broken down in different sections or different disciplines uh, and also, how the first animal welfare department was founded? Can you can you talk to us about about that, please?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there were people who were doing animal welfare research, uh, uh, but in the 1980s. But uh, in uh, 1985, uh, uh, a lady called Colleen McLeod, uh, who's who's uh, a veterinary surgeon, uh, was interested in the welfare of animals, said to him, "I'd really like to do something." Which would uh, encourage the scientific development of animal welfare studies, uh, and and how can I do that? And so he suggested that she should uh, donate money to the British Veterinary Association, and the British Veterinary Association, as a consequence, set up a, a fund, uh, and that fund. It was decided within the British Veterinary Association by the by by those who were running uh, that organisation then that they would. Uh, Set up a professorship of animal welfare, and so that post was advertised, and I was fortunate enough to get that job, and that meant that I moved from Reading University to Cambridge University, I and mean, that was back to Cambridge University, but to 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 Cambridge University Veterinary School, uh, in the Department of of Veterinary Medicine, and uh, that was engineered partly by Lawson Soulsby, who was the head of the vet school at that time, uh, who became Lord Soulsby. Uh, and and uh, who, who who died a couple of years ago uh, and he so he was he was a, a, a important in getting the post in Cambridge, so I got a job in Cambridge uh, which was just a, just uh, me as it were, and I then had to set about trying to raise research funds to to do scientific work on animal welfare science and indeed to develop it as a a scientific subject area which it wasn 't so it, so most people in the 1980s if you said animal welfare they didn't think of that as being something that you could measure scientifically so the so the biggest challenge in setting up this uh, 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 research group in Cambridge veterinary school was to say we are scientists we are doing something scientific we are measuring uh, physiological responses behavioral responses responses of the immune system uh, extent of injury these are all things which can be scientifically quantified uh, and that it was a and the public in general was a bit skeptical about that and the scientific community was this, was particularly skeptical about it so it was a difficult thing to start doing although that as i say there were were, were some other people who were doing it but they weren't they didn't often didn't have the word term animal welfare in the, in their job title so I had to explain what animal welfare was and one of my f- first publications was to, was to say what animal welfare is uh, the, the state of the individual as regards its attempts to cope with its environment so a very wide as- ranging uh, topic animal welfare everything that the individual has to do and uh, the, but the major focus at that time in relation to treatment of animals was when do they suffer and of course that's a very important question to ask and it's still an important question so but we had to we had to make it clear at the beginning that animal welfare was a science and that we could measure things and that that information could be used in formulating laws and changing policies changing the way individuals treated their own animals. And then that is something which I, I feel really has happened since uh, 1986 when I became the first professor of animal welfare in the world.
0: Yes. And till today, uh, the University of Cambridge is very active in the animal welfare uh, field. And and I think, you know, I've been on the course myself, so I'd love to. And, and you were one of the professors teaching on it. So I would love to draw people's attention to the courses on Animal Welfare, Science, Ethics, and Law, which um, are being run on a very regular basis uh, at the St. Catherine's College. And it's uh, tw- 10 years ago now that, that I did those uh, uh, three or five modules at the time. I was 10 days there, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So, And it's wonderful to hear the, the whole history of that. Thank you.
1: Well, may I say that you, your your contributions on that course were very valuable to everybody on the course, including those who were teaching it. Um, th- th- so this is a, this is a two-week course which is run each year in September. This year it has to, has had to be suspended for a year because we can't do it because of the current UK COVID-19 situation. Um, but it will run next year, and so that's a course that people can people can register for. Uh, 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 and that uh, you can find that on the website of of uh, uh, of course and that course is run uh, and taught by a range of people i 'm just one of those who who teaches on the course and then of course animal welfare science has is now being taught in all veterinary schools almost every veterinary school in the world now has an animal welfare course, and there weren 't any courses in when we started in 1986 there were there were uh, there was a course in edinburgh and there was a bit of teaching in bristol and a bit of teaching in Wageningen in, in the netherlands uh, uh and a bit of teaching in uh, the swedish university uh, of veterinary and, uh, and animal science university uh so there was a little bit of teaching but the, 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 at that time there were there wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't expected to be a component of veterinary courses, or animal science, animal production courses, or biology courses. So the, it, the, the teaching has really developed since the 1980s.
0: Yes, and we'll make sure to put a link also with the podcast information, so people can find uh, their way to the to the courses um, very easily. And also, animal welfare and care is now you know in the animal management and animal um, zoo husbandry and other types of courses and degrees that people can nowadays uh, take, uh, which weren't there, at least when I started in the animal field, there was none. So it's, it's very nice to see how much this field has grown and that it's really in all different aspects of animal care um, and welfare, you know, domains, really. And, but I, what I remember in, and at the course was also one of the discussions on, you've touched on health, and you uh, talk about welfare and and I remember you talking about the importance of seeing health as part of welfare. While often it's, you know, people talk about health and welfare. Um, can you talk more ab- along those lines, please?
1: Yes. Uh, so w- what an individual has to contend with in life is partly... Uh, a whole range of problems of not getting enough food, not regulating their temperature, being attacked by somebody else, but it is also dealing with diseases. So dealing with pathogens is a very important part of the the welfare of the individual. When you are sick, your welfare is worse than when you are not sick, that's obvious. Uh, And so uh, an understanding of how diseases affect individuals is is a crucial part of animal welfare. so the, the health, the health of an individual is essentially uh, the state in relation to, to pathology and treating, treating potential disease conditions. Uh, so that's a part of the wider subject area of welfare. So welfare is a, a bit wider subject than health, but health is a really important part of it. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of uh, that's now appreciated more widely. I think that uh, w- that uh, treatment of diseases is a part of a general Uh, uh, treatment of life aspect and so welfare deals with the whole of treatment whole of what happens in life and 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 health deals with the the the, all the things which are to do with dealing with pathogens and tissue damage and injury and so on and so the two things are very closely linked together and it's very important that people who are working on pathologies are thinking about the general welfare of individuals as i say that applies to humans as well as non-human animals
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and it's therefore, I think, so encouraging to see that there's more and more merging of, um, you know, health departments and welfare departments, as in having more types of umbrella, um, you know, subjects and, and an overarching framework and, and health and other aspects of welfare all being included in that. And also uh, in the health department to see more and more attention to the psychological uh, health um, and well being of the animals, so uh, not just the physical health but also the psychological health uh, of of the individuals so it's really wonderful to see all these these developments and of course you have you know really been part of the whole evolution and can you talk more about um, you know the history of animal welfare and and perhaps you know different disciplines or in different ways that people would study it on and aspects like that
1: yes i think it, in, in order to understand how individuals cope with the environment that they're living in uh, you have to have information from a wide variety of areas so we were just talking about the how individuals cope with 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 pathogens with injury with 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 uh, damage to tissues that's an important area so you need expertise from the medical and, and veterinary treatment therapeutic work prophylactic work are all relevant to animal welfare We, you, since all of the systems which individuals use to cope with their environment are run from the brain we need to know what is happening in the brain and of course what is happening in the brain is partly fairly straightforward mechanisms like um, a simple temperature regulation mechanisms, which are a a physiological change, but it's partly quite high level cognitive functioning. That is, you have to use sophisticated brain mechanisms in order to manage even temperature regulation, because you've got to know one way of regulating your temperature is to go somewhere where the temperature will, will be more what you need it to be. Uh, and so, in order to do that, you've got to have a much more complex brain mechanism than just uh, say, right. And now I'm going to start sweating, or I'm going to ra- raise my hair, or put a coat on. Uh, so, so the uh, the functioning of the brain is important. So people who are working on brain mechanisms are absolutely vital in understanding the welfare of, welfare of, of of animals, including humans. And you you need also to have people who have uh, so you need physiologists, you need people who work on behaviour, you, be, you need people who work on the immune system, on evaluating uh, injury levels, uh, and you need the people who are managing animals on a day-to-day basis. So in order to understand the welfare of animals, animals in zoos, the people who are professionally involved in caring for animals are the key, the key people, and they have knowledge about how to do that management work. And, To some extent, they understand physiology and behavior and biological functioning of animals in order to do that, even right at the beginning of such animal care work. But uh, they also develop practical knowledge of how to do things. and So bringing together the work of uh, research scientists like those who are working on on behavior and physiology and, and, and disease and so on, with the people who are doing the practical work is an essential thing in order to manage animals in such a way that their welfare is good. And this, it's been very noticeable to me over many, I've sat for many years on committees which were looking at the welfare of animals in, 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 in zoos. And uh, the, at, at the beginning of that time, and I started off doing, doing this before people were talking really about animal welfare very much, um, at the beginning of that time, the Welfare Committee, for example, at the Zoological Society of London was mainly concerned with with disease. And that's because there were vets who were sitting on it who were concerned with disease. And they weren't really thinking about what you need to provide for animals in their, where they live and what you need to do in order not to cause them welfare problems when you are managing them, handling them in any way. And so that whole area has been a major development. And it's really noticeable now that when there is a meeting, I, I went. I gave a talk at the Southeast Asian Zoos Federation meeting uh, uh, some a few months ago, and all of the people there, including the zoo directors, are now very much aware of the welfare of animals, and they are thinking about the welfare of animals in the in the general sense of welfare, in in terms of how they uh, what what they do in all of their work, all of their presentation of the animals, and that is a. That's not to say everybody has changed enough, but it has been a very important and valuable change, I think. And one of the results of that is we now realise there are some animals we can't really keep in zoos with good welfare, and there are other animals which we can keep in zoos with good welfare. And so obviously we should we should keep some and not keep others. And that, that kind of thinking is something which is a, was it initially very difficult, I think, for people in zoos because they were thinking, well, we've got to have one of everything. But then in some cases, you shouldn't have some animals because their welfare will be poor in the zoo and because the public will detect that and refuse to come to the zoos if you do uh, have animals whose welfare is obviously poor.
0: So you point to the importance of of us working together from different disciplines, from nutrition uh, experts to veterinarians to people working in pathology, people who are knowledgeable in behavior and cognition. Um, And also the importance of recognizing, and I think this is true, that many committees and different expert groups have really changed in composition. Uh, As you say, a lot of veterinarians are focusing on on health. Uh, That is their expertise. Of course, today, there's quite a lot of veterinarians who are specializing also in behavior. But the importance of really realizing that we all have these different expertise uh, to bring to the table and knowledge that all need to be taken in consideration and then of course the other aspect which I think you point to is that we start to become more and more aware of which animals really you know have optimal you know thrive uh, in human care or how we make decisions with regards to which species we could be housing in perhaps in which ge- geographical area. So it might be that um, it's it's not necessarily about not being able to ho- to host a species, to care for a species well, but to make decisions on whether a facility can do that well, or whether um, you know they the, the species might thrive in some different area, or there are uh, species that are not doing well. So there's this whole range. And I think it's really fascinating and important that we talk about this, um, because, of course, uh, you know, this is also how we have to make uh, decisions. And when it comes to, you know, decision making or trying to understand animals and what they are experiencing and feeling and thinking, can you talk to us a little bit about the different approaches uh, of uh, animal welfare and, and some of the evolutions you might have seen in that as well?
1: Yes, I think what you were saying is very, very interesting because there's no doubt that there, I mean, there are animals which have been, have been, kept, have been, lived close to humans for a very long time and are very, can readily adapt to close proximity to humans. So without some of our farm animals, some of our uh, companion animals are really well adapted to living uh, close to people. And that, uh, but on the other hand, there are, there are other animals which are, would are really would, find it extremely difficult to have a large amount of contact with people and are entirely inappropriate for keeping as pets and can't be kept on farms in, uh, in because they can't really adapt well enough to the farming situation so we 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 and i think we shouldn't actually be thinking of trying to start to farm new animals uh, especially if they wouldn't be able to adapt very well to uh, to farming conditions and we shouldn't be thinking of keeping as pets animals which are essentially wild animals that because they're keeping a wild animal taking a wild animal and bringing it into captivity uh, does cause extremely negative effects every wild animal or, or at least uh, vertebrate animals being brought into captivity uh, their welfare is generally rather poor so we have a situation then where there are animals like mink and foxes where the they are really they really have a hard time to adapt to farming conditions, but they can be kept in zoos in really good conditions because the zoo can provide for a much better environment than the average uh, mink or fox farmer can and so uh, and we have animals which should not be kept as pets in people's houses, but again, they can be kept in zoos and their needs can be met in zoos and so what we What we have to do is to say what are the needs of this kind of animal and can we provide for those needs and that's the same thing whether we're talking about a pet or a farm animal or a laboratory animal or a a zoo animal Uh, the we you have to consider what those the needs of those animals are and this has been a big area of research for some species at least that is we can actually ask the animals what they need we can say will it what will the animal work for particular resources so does does a does a budgerigar need to be able to perch on a branch? Should you provide branches? Should you what should you provide for a, each particular species? And that applies to food. It applies to a, the whole environment where they live. It isn't just food. And so we we have research in which we are using um, we we are using a sort of economic methods of saying what does this kind of animal choose? And how strong is the preference? And how long will they, how hard will they work for a resource? And this is a major area of animal welfare science. What do the animals prefer and how strong are their preferences is a really important thing to find out so that we can provide those, that for those needs in the way that we keep them. And if we can't do that, then we shouldn't keep them. So if, if we can't provide for their needs, then we shouldn't keep them at all. Uh, and that uh, applies, as I said, it applies to um, pets and applies to farm animals um, or, or, or laboratory animals. but And it also applies to zoo animals. And so some zoo animals can be kept very well with a certain amount of contact with humans, uh, with the sort of diets which can be provided in zoos, with the kind of uh, in, in environment which can be provided in zoos. Um, and other animals need, need more space than you've ever provided in a zoo so there, there are lots of animals which can be kept in zoos but the, but the the ones which are best adapted to humans are the ones which can be kept with the best welfare generally and that's why some of the, um, some of the farm animals and, and companion animals are are particularly suitable for keeping in zoos and people because they can then come into fairly close contact with people and have a beneficial effect i think on people uh, of people interacting with animals which are well adapted to that situation whereas if the animals are not well adapted then the people first of all you don't see them uh, very often because they hide all the time uh, and secondly uh, they, they may be showing uh, stereotypes or other abnormal behaviors or abnormalities of physiology or they may uh, be very susceptible to disease because of suppression of the immune system and uh, they don't live very long which is a, which is of course a significant measure of, of, of welfare if they can't live very long in an the environment then the environment isn't providing for their needs so by looking at what and what animals need and that's a scientific investigation uh, which you do by looking at preferences and also look at whether whether they survive without abnormalities of behavior and, and, and physiology uh, in the conditions uh, the, these are things, this is a methodology uh, which tells us what we can keep and what we can't keep yes
0: and i think it's it's so uh Great to highlight also that how many zoos and aquariums today have really, you know, embraced that looking at needs and also looking at preferences when we talk about individual animals and creating environments where uh, animals are comfortable, where they at the same time can be seen because they have you know, opportunities to be either high up or be in a hide, but the hide is still designed in a way that people can still observe the animals and the animals feel safe. So this whole interaction and, mm. and, and really also designing for all these different stakeholders, the animal as a stakeholder, the visitors, the people working and caring for the animals. And and yeah, so I think it's it's all those Pieces of the puzzle that are coming together that have made, uh, like you know, the preference testing with regards to what are the the needs of animals that we really, really have to have. And I, and yesterday we were in a in a webinar with Dr. Sally Sherwin, and and we were discussing aspects such as you know, anim- mammals are really resilient in the way that they can, they have, you know, the capacity to survive in in really quite barren environments uh while you know uh and and with you know even wide fluctuations with regards to temperature and humidity and so on while for example for reptiles or amphibians so we it's interesting to see between the different wild animals that have been housed and, and cared for and kept in, in zoological facilities around the world, aquariums included, how they actually have been different types of evolutions going on with regards to a lot more complexity and environmental enrichment and also training animals, right? To be comfortable, to interact in ambassador programs and presentations uh, with, with mammals. And then uh, perhaps the lagging, and now we're seeing this speeding up, with the attention to the um, enrichment and training of, of reptiles and amphibians so that you can, that you can actually see how different environments and different taxa have had uh, different types of evolutions. And, and you and I have worked on a paper on marine mammals uh, and marine mammal welfare, where we also really discuss how, you know, we have seen such an evolution of, environments and changes of environments for many animals housed in zoos and aquariums today but not yet so much for most of the marine mammals. Polar bears have seen a massive change, right? So uh, so it's really interesting uh, to discuss it and also to, to hear where some of these things come from because a lot of times, especially today with everything being online, um, we tend to uh, look for everything that we can find online and not necessarily knowing about books that have been written or, you know, the evolution or the stories, because there's not much out there necessarily to, to find unless you start conversations with people like you. So I'm really, really grateful that you're here today sharing um, all those insights. And, and of course, you know, there, you've already mentioned different approaches with regards to how we look at health. And disease and preference testing in animals. Are there a few technologies, um, maybe respond, uh, responders or radio-activated gates or other things, other types of technologies that you that you could share with us, and in how we can get insights also in animal welfare.
1: Yes, I'm glad, and I'm glad you referred to Sally Sherwin and her work because the, she and a, a number of other people have been looking, looking at what what different species need and that's, I think it's important that people who are in zoos are, are involved with actual research projects and doing that. Um, and, and I would have to say at the moment that the best zoos I think are, are good in terms of animal welfare and the worst zoos are really really bad in terms of animal welfare. Uh, so there are plenty of zoos around the world who, are, who have at least some animals which are kept in conditions which result in very poor welfare still. And although I think things have moved and they, they, the people who are, who are progressive and who are thinking scientifically are are changing things uh, but there are still lots of animals kept in what are called zoos where the animals are uh, the welfare of the animals is very poor indeed so we do need to to change things and we when we also need to uh, as i said not to not to keep the animals which can't adapt very well to to zoo conditions and some marine mammals definitely can't and we shouldn't keep them Uh, some some land animals can't uh, I mean, polar bears, I think, are still too difficult. I don't think we should be keeping polar bears, and then several, several other bears, we shouldn't. So there are some species which I don't think we can keep in captivity because you can't provide enough space for them. Uh, you, I mean, it's, if you provided enough space, then the people wouldn't see them, and so they're not appropriate for the zoo situation, and they're not, uh, I mean, and they're not really even be, not being helped in conservation terms by the zoo situation. Um, But uh, uh, there there certainly are methodologies now which people are starting to use where modern technology is is being used to help in in monitoring animals and in uh, providing better for their needs. So, uh, I mean, we started quite a long time ago saying that a lot of zoo environments, the major problem is there's nothing for the animals to do or not enough for the animals to do. And so if we can provide them with a system for getting food which is more exciting than just here it is then that can improve the life of the of the individual so if you if you are busy your welfare is generally a bit better than if you are uh, bored and so keeping busy uh, how to keep animals busy in a way which is enjoyable for them is has been a, a significant area of research which has been done in zoos and a lot of the major developments have actually been brought about by innovative caring staff in zoos who are working out methods of providing something which will improve, make life more interesting for the animals which they are responsible for. And that, I think that's, uh, there, there's still plenty to do there because although we know a bit about some species, there are other species where we don't. And you mentioned, uh, reptiles i'm afraid that the situation probably is that most reptiles in zoos their welfare is rather poor and uh, they're, they're, and people think well they're just sitting there but then they wouldn't be just sitting there would they and this is a snake and it's sitting in a very small space and it hasn't anything to do and it gets food but uh it, it's it's the life it, it there are very many things that snakes normally do which they can't do In a zoo situation. So so it may well be that a lot of the worst welfare in zoos is is of of, of reptiles. Um, So we we need to be investigating, finding out more about things like that. And it's also interesting that uh, uh, in, in order to cope with the world that you live in, if you have a sophisticated, very complex brain, it's easier to cope than if you have a rather less sophisticated brain. So welfare may well be worse for animals whose brain mechanisms are less, uh, less complex. And this, I mean this may apply to things like pain, for example. If you or I have pain, then we have methods of coping with pain. We have a number of things that we can do which will reduce the negative effects of pain or the negative effects of fear, which are often worse than pain. We have things we can do to minimize that. We are using our good brains to do that animals with slightly less good brains may be less well able to do it so pain and fear may be a worse problem for animals with slightly simpler brains than it is for animals with the most complex brains which is relevant i think to what your discussion with Sally showed so but i but i do think that we are certainly in a situation now where we can give animals more control over their environments welfare is better if you have control over your environment and that applies to me and it applies to every human and it applies to every other animal all animals have have mechanisms for controlling their interactions with their environment if you have more control then life is better welfare is better than if you have less control so if you can give the animal more control over its environment then you are likely to be improving its welfare and there are there are various things that you can do that people have tried for that. So some of them are mechanical things that the animal can operate, and some of them are, are there are possibilities of saying if the animal shows certain behaviours, then there will be certain things which happen, which can be set up by a, a, a an automated uh, process where the animal is, is 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 being monitored visually or auditorily. Uh, or its movements are being monitored, and then something happens as a consequence of its movements. So if it has a more interesting life, uh, if you have some kind of mechanism for saying something something will happen when you do this, then that improves the welfare of the individual, because they, all, all these, the, the, most of the animals which people want to see in blo- zoos are animals which, ha- which have got very complex brains. I mean, all vertebrates have complex brains. All fish reptiles, birds, mammals, and then some invertebrates like octopuses and, and, and some uh, crustaceans and insects do have quite complex brains, spiders. So if you provide something which allows them to use their brain, then they are going to have a better life than if, than if you don't. So there are lots of possibilities for innovative research being done in zoos on how to, how to use modern uh, uh, methodologies or checking on individuals and uh, allowing them to control what is happening to their world.
0: Yes, thank you for sharing your perspectives, and I'm sure you know. There's we can have so many different discussions on different topics and different species, and 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 of course, what you already have been pointing out out that for you know the whole of the podcast is also about scientific research that we need to do. To gauge what animals are experiencing, how they are perceiving the world and what you know other things that they need that they prefer, and to make those evidence-based decisions on you know whether this reptile is uh, this tortoise is experienced good welfare, poor welfare or this bear and can you talk about some of the ways that um, we are we can do? animal welfare assessments uh, and and perhaps even point to the importance of interdisciplinary approaches
1: well some some of the animal welfare research is something which can only really be done by somebody with good laboratory facilities other things can can be done by uh, uh, without any without any sophisticated facilities at all so and if you if you if you need to take a blood saliva urine faeces sample and analyze it for hormones, proteins, uh, other, other uh, substances which give you information about the welfare of the animal. That really is, a need. it needs a laboratory to do that. Uh, Behavioral work, some of, it is, some of it can be done readily uh, by the person who's caring for the animal. And of course it is, everybody, everybody who cares for animals uses their knowledge of the behavior of the animals. Um, and some behavioural research can be done by people uh, without much in the way of facilities, but some of the analysis would be, need a computer. But most people would have access to a computer now, so uh, more things can be done now. But and if you're trying to look at if you're trying to look at the immune system at diseases, then uh, you you need obviously expertise in order to do that. So there are some things which everybody can do, and some things which can only be done by uh, the animal welfare scientist in with laboratory facilities uh, but uh, but I, I think and i think in general the behavioral things are the ones which are being done best by people who are animal carers uh, on farms in laboratories in zoos uh, or indeed some uh, owners of pets and so you, you you we are we are learning faster probably about animal behavior uh, using animal behavior measures, but certainly animal behavior measures, I think, have been very important in changing how people think about the animals which are kept in captivity. And, uh, and when, when when people first saw stereotypies in farm animals or zoo animals, they didn't think of it uh, as giving very much information to them nowadays i think almost everybody knows that any stereotypy indicates a serious problem for that individual at that time and therefore that uh, and that's one of the reasons of course why people uh, people having learnt that then went to zoos and saw zoo animals showing a lot of stereotypies, and that resulted in people refusing to go to zoos and so the behavior pro- or indeed other abnormal behaviours which animals might be showing. So abnormal behaviour is something which can be observed by the general public. Uh, so th- those, those are things which need to be monitored really by all care staff to, and, and in some cases they can do something about it and in others they can't because the, the conditions in which the animals are kept are just not adequate to provide for the, for the animal's needs. So ob- observations of behaviour, observations of physiology can be done But but I think the one of the other areas which is relevant to how to give animals better control of their lives is to look at uh, learning, learning studies. Uh, and you can actually find out about what animals are learning with some fairly straightforward observations. And then other things require rather rather complex in control of what is happening. And so that it's difficult for, to to, uh, to be done except by somebody who is professionally trained in the area. So, but there are certainly some things which can be done in terms of learning, and I think actually understanding what animals can learn, understanding what kinds of concepts they must have, uh, and how um, how cognitive changes are related to changes in feelings, those are major developments in recent years which have changed our thinking about about uh, about animals, and that. So we now. There, it, it was being said not very long ago, as I mentioned at the, right at the beginning, that the farm animals are automata. They're just things which, where you put food in and, and the animal grows. Uh, and th- that idea that the animals were mostly automatic. I and mean, we had the word instinctive. I say had because nowadays nobody should ever use the word instinctive. We had the word instinctive, which implied that everything was genetically controlled and uh, the animal was just a, a programmed machine which was which was uh, operating. What we now know from a lot, of, a lot of developmental biology, molecular biology as well as behaviour studies is that uh, everything, every mechanism, anatomical, physiological, behavioural, all of them are influenced by genetics and are influenced by the environment. There isn't anything which is not influenced by the environment. Uh, and in other words, nothing, nothing is genetically programmed without environmental involvement. And so it's not, there isn't anything which is instinctive or innate uh, and in humans or in any other species. Uh, and so that, that thinking, that, that is quite a revolutionary thing for many people. You, you, I mean, you can't blame your bad behavior on your genes. Uh, it's, it's, it's affected by what experience you've had and, and, and how you're managing your own life. And so there are there are really quite fundamental changes in thinking going on now, uh, and that also uh, the part of the changes also have been that it was being said. So when I started looking at animal welfare, people were saying, "Well, animals don't have feelings." And now, whenever you if you talk about pain, fear, boredom, uh, various forms of pleasure, anxiety, nowadays there's very clear research on lots of non-human species that they have these kinds of feelings, they have the same kinds of mechanisms, very often the same kinds of brain processes are occurring in non-human animals as are occurring in humans. And that's another fundamental change in our thinking, that the difference between humans and other animals is very much less than we thought. And we talk about sentient animals which animals are sentient which animals have the capacity to have feelings have the level of awareness and cognitive function which allows them to have feelings and that list now is wide it's all vertebrates and some invertebrates are are sentient animals and so we are all sentient animals so the word we maybe is being changed from just being humans to sentient animals. We have so much in common with a lot of other animal species that we have to say we, meaning us and other sentient animal species. And so some of these changes in thinking about biology are relevant to everybody's everyday thinking uh, about our place in the world and the place of other species of animals in the world.
0: Yes. And you make such an important point there with regards to assessing the individual animal and the animal-based indicators and parameters and behaviors and sounds that can give us insights into what the animals are experiencing. Because often, you know, people look at what is given to animals, the inputs, as we often call them. So I appreciate uh, you having spent a lot of time also talking about really looking at, you know, the various aspects that are important from the animal's perspective that we uh, should be paying attention to. And you have a very long history um, and career in research and in writing. You've written many books and many, many articles. You've spoken all around the world. You're on all kinds of committees. And the important part, of course, is also to put the research into practice. Um, Can you talk to us a little about various successes that have been achieved for animal, for protection of animals, for increasing animal welfare standards, or the appreciation of animal welfare from the research, all the research done?
1: Yes, uh, a lot of the research uh, which has been funded uh is funded by government almost all of it is funded by government so in 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 in, in this in the, i'm speaking from the uk uk government the uh, eu uh and other national governments have funded uh, research not very much is, is funded by industry a little bit and a, a little bit by animal, animal protection groups but the vast majority has been funded by governments and most of that government money has actually gone for work on farm animals. So a lot of what we know about animal welfare has come from work on, on farm animals. I, I'd say that the first research that I was involved with, which actually changed something, was that I was lo- working on young calves and the calves were being kept in isolation in individual pens, In uh, so some, in some cases in small boxes, in some cases in larger pens and we did research which showed that isolation rearing of a calf had a very substantial effect on its behavior and welfare and uh, other people worked in the same area and uh, there were it was work on the diet of the animals work on work on on the effects on the physiological response physiological indicators of welfare and behavioral indicators of welfare so work which i did in the 1970s with colleagues uh, has had a significant effect in the end in saying that we must not keep calves in small boxes in individual individual uh, rearing situations, and so that's probably the first bit of work. And I did started doing that work in uh, in in 1970, uh, and so and then soon after that I also worked on uh, the keeping pregnant sows in stall and tether systems again individual housing of a a very complex animal which lives socially and c- cattle and pigs are both complex animals that are very social in all their living so depriving them of the social life and putting them in a situation where very few of their needs were being met uh, had a very extreme effect on their welfare and i think that actually probably keeping a pregnant sow in a in a, in a pen where it can't turn round for a large part of its life, is one of the most cruel things that people have ever done to any animal. And although it wasn't causing direct pain, it was much worse than causing pain to the animal. But that was being done very widely and is still being done in some countries in the world now. So so I think some of the early successes were really with farm animals and also with transport of animals. When, When animals are loaded into vehicles, they show a really big physiological response to that as well as some behavioral response and we found that that the the methods of loading could be substantially improved and you could minimize the number of times that you did that sort of thing. As far as zoo animals are concerned I think the some of the very earliest animal welfare work describing abnormalities of behavior was actually work which was done by by, uh, Heidegger in Zurich Uh, zoo where he described stereotypes in a number of zoo animals and I still quote some of the examples of his publications in the 1950s Uh, so some of the earliest studies of really severe abnormal behaviour in animals which is being caused by their needs not being met usually by too little space being available That some of that was actually being done and written about in scientific papers uh, as long ago as the 1950s so some of some of this information has been around for a long time but it's taken a long while for people to say well maybe we shouldn't keep animals in little cages which don't provide for their needs and there still of course are lots of examples of animals in the world which are kept for example pet birds in small cages uh, where which don't provide for their needs at all and uh, but it's still allowed in many cases uh, so so there has been there have been quite a lot of examples i think of where uh, research resulted in changes in practice so another example is laboratory animals uh, ra- r- rodents in cages if they have a wire floor the wire floor is they strongly prefer to rest on a solid floor um, res- the research showing that led to a large number of people in laboratories keeping the animals on solid floors because it was so clear that uh, from the research that being kept on a a wire mesh floor was not as good for the animals. So there there are quite a lot of changes which have occurred because of um, scientific publications, publications by animal welfare scientists. And I think that's applied in the zoo area as well as in the farm animal and companion animal area. But there are still lots of things which are not right. And there are also lots of things to find out, and in particular, there are species of animals where we have relatively little information about what their needs are and what is most important to them. We have general ideas about their needs, but there are, there are specific things which still need to be found out in order that we can interact with them in a way which doesn't put them at an enormous disadvantage, which is what we do with a high number of animals now.
0: Yes, and I think that's such an important uh, aspect, this whole, you know, asking questions, doing the research and then making changes accordingly. And that's certainly something that, that many zoos and aquariums today are implementing with regards to, you know, have if, if they've found that it's better for, say... Mm-hmm. A presentation or ambassador animals to have a certain space where they can retreat to or the animals in the farm uh, area the petting zoo area so you know implementing a retreat area or animals can choose to participate or not but it all came through all these different research and and it's so important to have research going on in zoos and whether, you know, perhaps some zoos don't have welfare scientists on staff, but, you know, I always say you might not have money, but you have doors. So open your doors to students and researchers from the outside that can come and help in all kinds of research projects in all kinds of domains. So it's really um, important to hear also from you what are some of the changes that we can make through, you know, doing the research and then uh, affecting those uh, you know, app- applying those uh, research uh, outcomes to making changes for animals. And, you know, we have been talking for over an hour and there's still so many di- different things to to talk about. Uh, and and perhaps, you know, you can come back and talk in more detail in another podcast. But before we conclude, I would um, like to invite you to share what you think, you know, if you you've given a lot of your perspectives and ideas, What are are these regarding the future directions for animal welfare?
1: Well, I I think that the future requires a very large change in thinking on the part of people. And I alluded to it a bit before. The idea that everything in the world is there for humans and that humans can do what they like with any other kind of animal. That is actually a dreadfully immoral thing to uh, attitude to life. Uh, And it leaves us. It leaves uh, it lead, leads us to all sorts of problems. I mean, I've been writing recently a little bit about uh, how we need to change our interaction with wild animals in relation to preventing uh, pandemics like the COVID-19 pandemic. And some, some of the things which are being done now, collecting animals from the wild, transporting them to other places, uh, they can spread diseases and they, the animals often have very poor welfare. But people are still doing this, and they 're doing it because they think i 'm a human, and I can do what I want. We have to think about not doing what we want, but we have to think about things from as you mentioned earlier, Sabrina, the perspective of the animals which we 're interacting with, whether it 's a wild animal which we might think of bringing into captivity or whether it 's an animal which is already in captivity that we interact with. we should think about it from their perspective, we should think about it from what is advantageous to them. And that applies to animal welfare, but it also applies to populations being preserved, to biodiversity being preserved, to uh, how do we conserve, Uh, what can we do which allows other species of animals in the world to have decent lives instead of the kind of uh, bad lives which we are imposing on them by human actions. So we have to think more carefully about all of our impacts on other species of animals in relation to welfare, in relation to things which might affect their whole survival. And we need to change things that we do and not just exploit animals without thinking. And there's far too much of that happening at the moment. And it is damaging the world. It is causing disease outbreaks. It is causing global warming. It is causing changes in the world which are undesirable and the extinction of large numbers of species. We can't, we, we should not morally We go on doing things which continue to cause such dreadful damage to the world we live in. We, the humans, have to do something about we, all sentient animals.
0: Thank you very much, Don, for sharing all your insights and the perspectives and also, you know, a, a glimpse of a lot of decades of your work and, and the evolution of the field of animal welfare. I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, to continue the conversation with you in another podcast or another platform.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Yes, and we look forward also to having you as a speaker on the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform uh, very soon. So thank you so much for being uh, with us today on the, on the podcast. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out Pause, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals, and keep buzzing.